The Apostle Paul is no stranger to controversy. Uh, he's actually pretty comfortable with controversy, which is one of the reasons that he got beat up so much. And one of the reasons that he spent a decent amount of time in prison cells. Uh, because he was willing, not that he was always brave about it, he, he has people pray for him to have enough courage to do these things, but he was willing to go and speak out on things that were very controversial to the people of his day. Uh, things like this, that all people, whether Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, all people are welcomed through Jesus, welcomed into the family of God. It was a pretty controversial idea back then when he was preaching that. Or, or this one, that um, the law, the Old Testament that had been given to the Jewish people was not the way that you got into God's family. That that was only through faith in Jesus and His work on your behalf. That's how you got to be a part of His family. That was hugely controversial. That, that kind of stuff got rocks thrown at his head when he said those things back then. Um, Paul actually, though, is also um, would not be, I don't think, too uncomfortable with controversial statements of today because he makes a lot of statements in his, in his letters that are pretty controversial for our culture today. Um, we've gone through a number of them in Romans. Romans has a, a bunch of big things that people are kind of uncomfortable with. This idea that every human being is sinful and has um, separated themselves from their Creator, from God, because of their rebellion against Him, because of their selfishness and sinful hearts. Um, this idea that because they do that, that they face, all of us are facing the judgment of God, His rightful and just wrath poured out on sinful humanity because of what we've done, because of who we are. Um, those are not popular ideas. Uh, this idea uh, that even though we do face God's judgment, that He has made a way for everyone to be made right with Him and brought back into His family because of His Son, Jesus, who came and died for our sins. Uh, now, that, that one you might go, what's so controversial about that? That pretty, sounds pretty sweet to me. Um, there are a lot of people who don't like because the, the idea that it's only through Jesus that that takes place. And there are a lot of people who don't like the idea that Jesus had to die to pay for my sins. That makes to them, that makes God sound mean or bloodthirsty, even though we, we explained a while, while ago in Romans 3 why, why that's just not true. But Paul says a number of things in this book that stir up a lot of controversy and might make people frustrated. Tonight is... Not one of those texts. We might actually be talking about the least controversial topic in the book of Romans tonight. Uh, the most popular topic in the book of Romans, Christian or non-Christian, everybody can get on the same page with this one, at least on the surface. At least when you, when you read it just kind of at the very beginning, it sounds really nice. But the deeper you get into it, you start realizing, oh, we both like this idea, but Paul might be defining it from a different dictionary than me. He might be using something else to come up with his definition for this term. We're in Romans 12, starting in verse 9, if you want to turn there in your Bibles. We made kind of the, the turn... Uh, we talked about last week from 
indicative statements in Paul where Paul says all these things about the gospel and who Jesus is as the Son of God who loved us and died for us to take away our sins. And, and then we turn the corner where Paul says, in light of that, in view of what, he is, what God has done for us in Jesus, let's now offer our bodies to Him as living sacrifices. Let's live a life worthy of this. And, and so we've made this switch to where now Paul is giving commands and imperatives. And so he last week talked about how we ought to use our gifts as a body, as the church, to build one another up and to serve one another. Not to make ourselves look great, but for other people, for the church. And then from there he moves into this idea, um, actually... Uh, Love is kind of the main thing that he's getting into, but it's kind of this series of instructions here. He's using this uh, ancient kind of writing style, this writing technique called perinesis, um, which was usually defined by three different things. Uh, first is that it was usually used for moral exhortation. So do this, don't do this, be like this, don't be like this, that kind of stuff. Um, second, it usually depended heavily on tradition. So a person who was doing this was a lot of times drawing from other sources. See tonight as we read through if you can recognize what those sources are, what, um, what Paul's citations would be or his footnotes would be if he was writing them down at the bottom of this page. And then lastly, Paranesis were, were known for being like loosely structured, kind of like quickly stacking ideas, sometimes even just kind of random ideas on top of each other, one right after another. So, so tonight's going to be a little different where we've read before like large chunks of the book of Romans um, that are like all on one theme. And we got to read this whole, ch- you know, one time we did all 9, 10, and 11 because you got to read it all to get it all together. This is going to be like every verse is going to be a different idea. Sometimes two, three ideas in a verse. And so it's going to be kind of broken up a little bit, um, a little bit different here as we go into it. Um, it's broken. I would, I would say you can kind of break this little section up into two main sections um, that, that kind of fit together a, a little bit. And so what I want to do is I want to read that first section, the, which is 9 through 16, all together. And then we'll go back through it and break it down one by one, uh, verse by verse. And then we'll read 17 through 21 all together and then go back through and break it up verse by verse. So here's what Paul says in Romans 12, verses 9 through 16. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. So this is this first section. If you look at verse 9, I'll read it again. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. That first sentence, let love be genuine. There actually is no verb in it in the Greek. Um, which means it, it more literally reads... Uh, the love sincere, or genuine love. And some people think that this is actually a heading for this whole section here. That Paul's just going to say, let me describe to you real love. 
uh, what it looks like. And so most of what he talked about seems to at least touch on the idea of love and how to love one another. And so he describes all these different things about love. But the first thing that we see about genuine love is interesting. First thing we see about love is that love hates. And that might surprise some people, but, but Paul says love hates. That, that that's actually not an odd thing for it to do. Love hates evil. So genuine love, he says, hates evil, abhor evil. Anything that is set against God's good design for his creation, for his image bearers, will ultimately <laughs> tear them apart. Anything sinful, rebellious, wicked, ultimately works against the good of those who have been designed in his image. And so, if you love those people, Paul says... You ought to hate the evil that destroys their lives. And then he goes on to say that they ought to cling to what is good, to hold to what is good. Verse 10, he says, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Two sentences in that verse. The first verse is, uh, has two verbs used to describe like Familial love, the love between families. The first is um, philostargos, I believe it is. Yeah, philostargos. And that's, that was the kind of love that a parent would have for their kids. That was usually what that was used to describe. When it says be devoted to one another, that's the word, philostargos. In the way that a parent is devoted to their children, that's how you ought to treat other people in the church. So you ought to treat other Christian brothers and sisters. But then he says, with brotherly affection. And that word is a word you actually know. The Greek word is Philadelphia. Um, for where we get that word, the city of brotherly love. And, and, and so in the sentence he says, um, be devoted to each other like parents to a kids with the affection that siblings have for one another. Um, when, when the New Testament writers talk about this idea that as the body of Christ, as Christians, we are a family, to them that is not just a metaphor. That's not just an illustration. Uh, they, they mean that there is something very real that takes place. When you place your faith in Jesus, you are welcomed into a true family, um, a family that is actually runs deeper than than the own, uh, your own blood family. Uh, something has a deeper connection in it than that. And Paul says that we ought to love each other like that because that is what we are. This, of course, is not their own idea. They didn't just come up with this out of nowhere. Jesus says this in Mark 10. Um, when, when a rich young ruler is unwilling to leave behind his riches to follow Jesus. And the disciples are kind of enamored by this because Jesus says, man, you know what? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they're like, whoa, that's, that's crazy. And, and, and Peter goes, you know, Jesus, I don't know where, where this kind of comes from exactly, but he's like, we left everything to follow you. You know that, right, Jesus? And, uh, and Jesus says, yeah, I know. And then he says in Mark 10, he says, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus says when a person is willing to step away from the things they love most, even if it means it, the people they love most, if, if, if their mothers and fathers reject them 
for following me. If their brothers and sisters reject them, Jesus says, that will sting, but, but trust me, you're going to get a hundred times back as much because you're going to get the church, and the church is your family. The church will love you like family. You're going to get a hundred houses because anybody's home is open to you now, Jesus says. That's, that's what the church is supposed to be, what it's meant to be like. So he says, love each other with brotherly affection. Then he has this really kind of cool idea, this second sentence in that verse. um, Outdo one another in showing honor. This idea of like a competition to see who can show the most honor to the other person. Uh, Some people have have stated before, and I think it's true, that in, in the Christian life, our relationships are a race to the bottom. Um, that whereas in much of the world it's the, the opposite. It's a race to the top to see who can climb the ladder, who can be uh, on top. Um, for Christians, it is a constant race to see who can make it to the bottom of the totem pole, who can be the lowest, who can serve everyone else, because that's the example that is set for us by Jesus himself and, and what he calls us to do. This is what Paul says, outdo one another in showing honor. Verses 11 through 12 says, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. So there are these two sets of uh, triplets. The first one is, do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit and serve the Lord. So don't be lazy in, but be fervent. That, That word fervent uh, is a word that was used for boiling. Um, so like when, when something is so hot that it begins to bubble over. Um, he says, have that kind of passion in you. The kind of passion that bubbles over for serving the Lord and His church. For serving God in those ways. Um, and then the second set of triplets has to do with um, staying the course. So if the first one is about having a passion and excitement and a zeal, the second is about consistency and steadiness. Christianity holds both of these things together. That to follow Jesus means passion and consistency, uh, steadiness and zeal. Um, it says, Rejoice in the hope of your future glory. Be patient in whatever hardship or affliction you may be facing. And this one, I got to talk about it a couple weeks ago at Sunnybrook. Pray constantly. Pray constantly in order to be able to have that kind of zeal, in order to be able to have that kind of hope, in order to be able to serve the Lord that way, it's going to mean that you, you are praying constantly, coming to Him, asking for help in these things. And then verse 13 says this, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Um, most people, when they hear that word, saints, uh, their mind goes to either really holy dead Christians or almost dead Christians, right? Like really old people. When, when we talk about someone in the church, that, that woman is a saint. You know, A, she's super nice. B, she's about to die sometime soon. Like <laughs> she's super old. Like that's, that's kind of our language that we use. Um, for some people in some traditions, they literally think of saints as like Dead people who were super holy and powerful and maybe did a couple miracles. That's kind of like the Catholic. Um, you've, you've got to have at least two miracles to, to achieve sainthood, this special status as, as, um, as kind of marked above a lot of other people in your spirituality and closeness to Jesus. But the Bible, when it uses the word saint, um, it, it literally it just means holy ones. That's the word. It's, it's the noun form of the word holy. 
And um, it uses the word saint to talk about anybody who has faith in Jesus. So when it says the word saint, it means you, if you've placed your faith in Jesus, because you have been made holy by Jesus, by his death on a cross for your sins, you've been made holy, and so you are now a saint. And, and so when he says to care for the saints or be ready to meet the needs of the saints, he's just talking about any and every Christian to have that kind of, that kind of love for your brothers and sisters and then to seek to show hospitality. Um, the word there, the, the ESV puts in there, seek to show there, because it's not just practice um, hospitality. The word is pursue hospitality. Um, in, in the first century, there were not a whole lot of hotels or motels or inns wherever you went. And where they did exist, they were kind of seedy environments, uh, dangerous sometimes and, and not very wholesome. And so hospitality was a huge deal um, for you to be willing to open up your home and allow someone into your home. And this is really big for Christians, for those who followed Jesus, that wherever they went, that they would have family who would open up their homes to them, who would be willing to care for them and meet their needs. Paul says, um, don't just be willing to, but be in pursuit of hospitality and be ready to meet people's needs. I have been the, benef uh, I have the beneficiary of this kind of love um, throughout my entire life. Uh, when I was uh, a kid, I grew up in a youth minister's home, and uh, and then eventually he got promoted to family minister, which I don't even I don't think that means anything as far as pay. Okay, it just it's just a different title. Um, and my mom was a stay-at-home mom. She worked she worked at a preschool, um, and and did that like two or three days a week and that kind of stuff. And that was intentional. They wanted, they wanted her to be able to be home with us and that stuff. But it, it just meant um, we didn't always have tons of money. But um, I have been able to witness, and my parents were really good about stopping to explain to me the way that God was constantly providing for us through his people that people were kind enough to care for us and, and help us. And, and, and it wasn't like one of those things where we were going without food or anything. We, we always had enough food and that stuff, but just generosity. Um, uh, the van sitting right on the other side of this wall, um, that sweet ride that I know you guys all envy. Every time you see me pull up in that thing, uh, I've heard some people call it the Maserati. We can do that. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> 2010, um, was it, no, sorry, 2012, Amy and I find out that we're pregnant with our third kid, um, which is super exciting. And at the same time, kind of like, whoa, like, are we ready for this? Or can we? And, and one of the issues was our, our other kids were still really young and still in car seats. And so we didn't have a car like big enough to put three car seats in. And we weren't exactly sure how we were going to do that. Things were tight and we didn't know if we'd be able to to be able to afford that thing and, and all that stuff. Um, nobody even knew we were pregnant yet. I can't remember if my family might have known. I don't know. Uh, but uh, one day I get a call from Jim Johnson who says, hey, I want to, uh, are, are you home? Yeah, I'm home. All right, I want to come by. I want to show you something. He comes by and he pulls up into our driveway with this van uh, and, and comes and his wife is like filming this thing. Um, <laughs> And, and I'm not totally sure what's going on. And then he hands me the key and explains that this is ours now. And she's filming it because they weren't the ones giving it to us. I, to this day, do not know who gave us that van. Uh, somebody had it on their heart. They didn't know that 
They didn't know that we were pregnant. They didn't know that we needed another vehicle. Um, had it on their heart to help us out and, uh, and decided to give us this van. And so we wrote a, we wrote a note telling them they, were the, they and our parents were the only people who knew that we were having another kid. And I don't know, even know who they were. Um, but we wrote them a note letting them know how God had provided for us through their generosity and, and through their love for us. It was so cool to get to experience that. Some of you have been able to experience things like that. Um, and, and it's cool when, when we get to see God's people love like that. Um, he says in verse 14, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Um, he seems here in this moment to take a little bit of a sidestep because everything else so far has mostly talked about our relationships within the church, within the body of Christ, our brothers and sisters. But here he takes a step outside of it and talks about those who are not a part of the church and not just aren't a part, but who are against the church, who are against you, who persecute you for your faith. So he's going to actually come back to that in a little bit and dig into that more. So I'm going to jump into the next verse. We'll talk some more about it in a second. Verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, This one, strangely enough, uh, probably struck me the most this week as I was studying this passage. Uh, It seems so small. Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep, but it's not. Um, When you join in with the joys and the pains of other people, when you join in their joy as though it's your own joy, when you share in their pain as though it's your own pain, um, that is something that is extremely life-giving to a person. It is incredibly encouraging to know that you are not alone in your pain and to know that you're not the only one celebrating the good things that are getting to happen in your life. But it's not just something that's good for them. It's good for you that you are that kind of person. Um, my kids are still at the age and stage of life when birthday parties are like it, like super cool to get to, to be a part of and, and they still you know, make plans for their own but it's also super awesome when they get invited to one um, and it also is super crappy when my brother or sister get invited to one and I don't get to go to one, they're at that stage, right? And so when one of, when one of them gets invited to a birthday party and gets to go to the roller dome, the coolest place on earth, um, and go do that, the other two are like mad about it and they get angry and, and, and it's like, I don't know, first of all, I don't know what you want me to do about that, I can't, I can't invite you on behalf of this kid that I don't know to go to his birthday, so why are you getting mad at me? Um, but they get really frustrated at that. When, when that happens, my wife and I actually like to use that as an opportunity to sit down um, and sit down with our kids and say, hey, you know this means something's wrong with your heart, right? Like if, uh, if you cannot be happy when something good happens to a person you love, then that's a sign that there's something that's wrong in your heart. And so even if, even if you don't get to go to the birthday party, there ought to be some bit of joy in you that a person you love, your brother or your sister, gets to go do that. And if, and if you can't have that, then that might be a sign that there's something that's off inside of you. Um, this is always a struggle for all of us, though, not just my kids. When, when it seems like, man, just one more friend of mine goes and she got engaged again. And it feels like I'm the only person, maybe this is you, you feel like you're the only person who's never going to get married. And when is this going to happen for me? And, and you're trying to be and you are sort of kind of happy for your friend. But at the same time, you feel this kind of sadness slash maybe even bitterness that kind of wells up in you. 
uh, when your roommate gets that scholarship that you were really hoping to get or that internship that you were really hoping to get um, and you kind of struggle to be excited for them. That's just a sign of something in us. It's natural to be a little sad when you miss out on something. It's natural to be a little sad. Um, but there ought to be such a deep connection between me and my brother and sister that I can be excited for them when good things happen to them. Um, and then uh, likewise, not only do I not want to just be jealous, but I also want to be able to be involved in their life when they are going through pain. I don't want to remove myself from them because, you know, I just don't have the emotional capacity to deal with that right now. I know they're going through some stuff, but I've got my own things. and I don't have the ability. I don't have the, the time to enter into that, the, the drain that that's going to be on my life, that way of thinking. John Stott says this, Love never stands aloof from people's joys and pains. Never stands aloof, never stands at arm's distance, arm's length from people's joys and pains. Verse 16, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We talked last week about this idea that you ought not to think more highly of yourself than you should, that this is fundamental to community, um, humility. It's a fundamental component of humility, and humility does mean acknowledging my weakness and acknowledging my needs. That's a big part of it. But more than anything, humility just means not making yourself the point. Um, more than we think of humility as like you have to think crappy of yourself. You have to think really bad things about yourself, that you're not that great. Humility is not so much you think bad stuff about yourself as much as you just don't think about yourself. That you're too busy thinking of others. You're too busy concerned with others to be kind of thinking through those stuff on your part. So that becomes really big. Now, Paul is going to take that little statement he made in verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And he's going to circle back around to it. And he's going to expand that out a little bit more in these next few verses. We'll go through them briefly. Um, 17 through 21 says this, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thoughts to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So, first statements out of the gate in verses 17 through 18 is repay no one evil for evil. Repay no one. Paul says here, this is his second time to say it, we do not retaliate. When someone wrongs you, as, as a follower of Jesus, as someone who is devoted to Christ, when someone wrongs you, this is critical. Rule number one, when you get hurt by someone, don't strike back. We don't respond in kind to those things. Um, and, and he makes a big deal out of this. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but we want to think intentionally about the way we're acting to people around us. He says, be purposeful about acting in a way that is honorable to everyone around. That when people look at your life, that they ought to see a person who is not engulfed in bitterness or jealousy or anger, but that they see someone who responds in honorable ways, in kind ways, in loving ways to those people around them. Um, 
he, he acknowledges that as much as we want to try and work well with people, that that might not always be possible. He says this, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So he knows that that won't always be the case for you. That as hard as you may work, that you will not always be able to live at peace with people. He knows this because he himself experienced that. That as Christians, as followers of Jesus, when we try to hold to the truths of the Scripture in a world that is against this, we will often be misunderstood. We will often be wrongfully labeled as hateful, or as judgmental, or as bigots, or as backwards. And we cannot control that. We can't control the way people perceive us when we hold to this truth. But we can control the way they perceive how we live out this truth how we engage in the things that we hold to. And it is important that no matter how they may misunderstand, that they see the love of Jesus in us. Uh, Matt Chandler, I heard him one time say something like this, that people are just going to wrongfully label you as a bigot when you try to follow Jesus and hold to the truth here. It's going to happen. But he said they ought to. We ought to act in ways that people have to say about us. Man, those Christians, they sure are bigots, but, but man, they're the most loving bigots I've ever met in my whole life. Um, and I, and I like that. I like that idea um, that I cannot control exactly what they want to call me or label me, but I can love them in a way that is hard for them to argue or hard for them to miss. Um, 19 through 21, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. This is now the third time in just a few sentences that Paul says, Don't try to get even. Don't get paybacks. Do not. Retaliate. This is a big deal for him. Um, he makes a really big deal of it. And the reason why he says here, it's not because when someone hurts you, it's not, it's not because it's wrong for that person to face justice for it. They ought to face justice for it. When someone does sinful things or wicked things, justice ought to come to them. Paul says the reason you don't do it, though, is because you're not the one in charge of that. It's not your prerogative to, to dole out justice wherever you see fit. That we leave in the hands of God. And we trust that He will take care of it. Whether uh, in this life, which we'll talk about next week, how God doles out justice in this life, um, or in the one to come, we trust Him with it. And I, I don't have to be in charge of making sure that everybody gets their dues all the time. No, I can leave that in His hands. His quote here is from Deuteronomy 32 35, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then he says this, to the contrary, not only do you not retaliate, but actually what you need to do when someone wrongs you and is your enemy, is you need to try to find ways to care for them. Try to find, feed them if they're hungry. Give them something to drink if they're thirsty. Now his reasoning sounds a little weird at first. And thus you will heap burning coals on their heads. Because you love them, right? Um, it, it sounds a little odd at first, but, but what we believe Paul's actually getting at is this idea. There's actually a practice, an old Egyptian practice, where a person who was repentant would actually, as a way of showing that, would carry um, burning coals on their heads, would put like coals on top of like a platter type thing on their heads. It was a way of showing penitence. And so um, Paul's quoting from the book of Proverbs, which some people think is borrowing this Egyptian idea. What Paul's getting at, I think, is when we show kindness to someone who is hateful to us, it has a way of causing them to see their error and bringing them to repentance, which is what we want. We want them to be able to come to true repentance and see the truth. That is the goal of those 
things. So Paul gives these two different ideas of love within the church and outside of the church. And, and this is big and helpful. And as I said, everybody loves this. But once we get to explore it a little bit more in depth, it may not always be quite as popular. We'll talk about that in just a couple minutes. First, we'll take a break, all right? Let's jump back in real quick. Um, as I said earlier, in some ways, uh, this may be the least controversial topic in the book of Romans. Um, no one that I know of has a problem with love. Uh, everyone is pretty much pro-love. Uh, like if you go out on the street and ask, ask a group of people, take a poll, would the world be better with more love or with less love? Okay, Nine out of ten are going to go with the first option, more love. And the tenth guy, his girlfriend just broke up with him, so he's just bitter, right? <laughs> but like... Everybody, like everybody else in their right frame of mind is like, love is a good thing. We, we need to have more of that. That's what we desire. That's what we want. But um, there are two major problems whenever we come to this issue of love. And that is uh, that living love is way harder than liking love. It's really easy to like love. It's really easy to love love. Everybody loves love. But living love out is, is a, another ordeal, and that becomes much more difficult. But the second one that I think makes this more confusing is that our world consistently holds out cheap knockoffs and presents it as love. Um, rip-offs or substitutes for love and tries to claim that this is what love is. And so it can get really confusing. That's why we need passages like Romans 12. That's why we need passages like 1 Corinthians 13 that hold up biblically what we mean when we say love. And, and so uh, I thought it might be kind of fun tonight to actually just hold up next to each other um, a few different things. One is what the world tells us about love, and then what Paul tells us about love, and then what our flesh tells us about love or about how we ought to live. Now, let me just clarify real quick. Uh, if, you've been in, if you've been with us a little bit, you probably know when, when we say our flesh, what we mean is, what the Bible means, what Paul means when he talks about the flesh, is um, the sinful, selfish humanity that is unchecked by, by the Holy Spirit or by God's Word in their life. So that, that part of who I was that was bent on getting what I want and what I want alone. That is the flesh. I am under the influence of the flesh when I am working for what Drew wants, to get him to the top of the ladder, to get him what he wants, and, and unconcerned with other people that is fleshly in nature. So I want to talk just about, I want to compare a little bit of what the flesh tells us to do with what Paul says, and with what the world says love is, with what Paul says, and, and talk through those. So I'll try to go through those briefly. I'll have them up on the screens here so that you can see, uh, see those and, and maybe take notes if you want to. The world versus Paul on love. Here's the first thing we see. The world says that love is a feeling that leads to actions. My love for someone is, the way this, the way this uh, thinking goes, is that my love for someone is the warmth or the passion that I feel towards that person. And, and that's why we can talk about love as being something that you fall into. 
You fall in love. It's, it's, it's this feeling that you just find yourself into. It's also something that you can fall out of love because it is a, it's an experience is what love is. And that experience and those feelings and that warmth will inevitably, hopefully at least, lead to me treating that person in a certain way, that I will act in kind ways because there's a feeling there that is generating that inside of me. Um, and, and this is kind of a key way for people to think about those things. Some would even say, actually, that it is disingenuous and not fair to continue being with a person if I've fallen out of love with them. Uh, there are a number of people who will talk that way, that they're in a marriage and they fell in love with the person and sometime later they find that the, the magic's not there and they just say, they just say I've just fallen out of love and, and they reason to themselves that this really isn't even fair to this person for me to stay in this hypocritical relationship while I'm not feeling this anymore and to continue to just kind of pose as though we're together when I don't feel that way. It's not real love because love for them is a feeling that leads to action. Paul says this though, that love is a choice that is connected to but not determined by my feelings. Connected to but not determined by my feelings. I, I actually, choice is a good word, a better word may be mindset because it's, it's a consistent, repeated choice that is played out over and over again in my life. The very idea that Paul believes that you can command love means that it has to be bigger than a feeling because I can't command you to feel something. I can't lay that out as an imperative. I can't make you do that. And so Paul believes that this is a conscious decision on our part and sometimes a very hard one. It's not always easy to be generous to people, as he says. It's not always easy to outdo someone in honor, to want to do those kinds of things. And it's definitely not easy to pay back evil with good. But, and so Paul says, no, this is a decision you make whether you feel it or not. And at the same time, though, Paul does not divorce love from feeling and say that those two things have nothing to do with each other. No. How does he say we ought to love each other? With the kind of love that a parent has towards their children with the kind of love that a sibling has for its sibling. Brotherly affection, even that word, affection, carries this idea that there's going to be some level of warmth, that there's going to be some level of feeling. And feelings towards people feed our ability to love well, but those feelings will not always be there. And it's in those moments that we choose love. We choose to desire and work toward the good of others. And the secret is this, that actually that's often where the feelings come from. Um, that m many people think that I cannot actually show love to somebody until I feel it in my heart. But actually what, what a lot of human experience will reveal to you, what C.S. Lewis makes a big deal of in mere Christianity, is it actually works the opposite so many times. That, that the secret, when you don't feel feelings of love for someone is to treat them as though you already do and what you'll find is that the feelings follow um, that often our hearts follow our bodies follow our minds follow our words and so that becomes pivotal um, that feelings can be a part of and they can even be fuel for our love but they cannot be the foundation of it Second thing, this is not what the world says, this is what our flesh says, what our natural sinful desires say. Protect your heart and your pride. 
I'm not talking about romantically here. Sometimes we hear in with uh, advice that you need to guard your heart when it comes to dating, when it comes to boys or girls. That, that can actually be wise advice because you're never more stupid than when you're in love. And so it's good of you to be careful about who you give your heart to and to not just jump into it. What I mean here is that there is something inside of us that tells us often to protect ourselves when it comes to entering into a relationship with someone. And that's because what makes loving someone difficult, and I'm talking about the basic things like walking across the room to the quiet person here at the table and engaging with them in interaction, or in conversation. I'm talking about uh, a phone call and inviting someone to go do something with you, to come over or to go hang out with you or something. The things that make that those little activities hard is the idea that you might end up feeling dumb when they don't reciprocate. The reason it's hard for some people to say, I love you, to actually say those words out loud, I don't know if that's you or not, the reason it's hard for some people to say, I love you, is because they know that the person they say it to might respond with something like, oh, thanks, or awesome sauce, or whatever, right? And, and, and there's something that, that makes you feel foolish, that makes you feel vulnerable, like you've laid yourself out there. And so it's only natural for us to want to protect ourselves. Uh, Ed Welch a writer I really like and, and Scout's been reading recently says this, the one who takes the initiative, the one who loves most is the one who risks humiliation. The one who is willing to love most in the relationship is the one who risks the most humiliation. And so that's why we guard ourselves. That's why we don't walk across the room. That's why we don't invite that person to do so. That's why we don't say I love you because we don't want to feel dumb when they don't reciprocate. Paul, on the other hand, says, lay down your pride, lay down your fear, and love first. Initiate. He says this, outdo one another in honor. Do you know how risky it is to outdo other people in honor? We say Christianity is a race to the bottom. What if, what if the person you're trying to race isn't entering the race? What if that person's just content to let you go straight to the bottom and be the one person who serves and, and you turn into some kind of doormat for them? You will, by the way, face this in marriage. Uh, those of you who, who end up getting married, you will feel this at times. Um, in marriage, it is designed, that is the ultimate race to the bottom, where each spouse ought to be looking toward the needs of the other and serving them. It gets really easy. There is always this thing inside of you when you're serving that says, what if they just come to expect this from me? What if they just kind of come to think like, that this is just how it is, and they, they come to expect that. You know, I work really hard, and there are a lot of husbands who don't do the things for my wife that I do, and I feel like she's just expecting it as normal. So, so now when I don't do these special things, she just gets mad about it. Like, those kinds of things will roll through your head, and you'll forget all the ways that your spouse, that my spouse, Amy, serves me in so many ways. It's so easy to want to guard my pride and protect it and not reach out because I'm afraid that someone may not do their part back. But that's not your job to worry about whether someone else will love you back. Your job is simply to love other people even in ways that might cost you. To initiate, to introduce yourself, to serve them first, to express love to your friends, to express care to your friends. That's what we're called to do.
Third thing, the world says this, that love means blanket support for a person's choices and actions. In our culture, this might be the biggest false narrative about what love is. That to love someone means that you agree with everything they do, or everything they want, or everything they choose to be. And if there are things that you don't accept, then clearly you aren't being loving to them. It's one of the major belief systems about love in our culture today. If your roommate is beginning to date in an unhealthy relationship and you pull them aside and call them on that, you find them asking things like, why can't you just be happy for me? Um, Or you've got uh, a friend who's getting into the party scene on the weekends and they come back and it's clear they're drinking too much and there are things they shouldn't be doing and you sit them down and you say, listen, I don't think you should be living like this. I don't think you should be doing like this. And the automatic response from some will be, why do you got to be so judgmental? Why can't you be more more kind? Why can't you be more loving? You've got to be so harsh all the time, or if they're engaged in any sort of sexual sin, whether that's same-sex relationships or whether that's sleeping with their boyfriend or their girlfriend when you know they shouldn't be because they're not married and you step out to say that, you'll be accused of being hateful sometimes. You'll have them ask things like, why can't you just love me for who I am? Why can't you just accept me for who I am? Because for our culture, love means blanket support for a person's choices and actions. But Paul says, loving someone means hating the sin that's wrecking their hearts. Whether they know it or not, abhor what is evil, Paul says. Hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. There's another place, 1 Corinthians 13, 6, where Paul says this, Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. And it is a false dichotomy to say that you cannot love someone while disagreeing with their life. In fact, here's a little bit of tip for you. The people who love you most are the people who will be willing to call you on your crap. So when someone sits you down and calls you, and your first instinct is to get defensive, and, and your first instinct is to, is to give reasons why they need to back off, and you know you got your own problems, all those things, stop. And just recognize that anyone who's willing to put themselves in that awkward position loves you deeply. So to be able to sit down and talk to you about a foolish decision or a sinful decision that you're making. Uh, Max Lucado is this famous author from uh, in like the 90s. He wrote, it felt like he was writing like a Christian book like every month, all these things. Um, I never read a Max Lucado book, but I did read the back cover of one of them one time. Um, and I just wrote this one line that has stuck with me a lot. He says this, Jesus loves you just the way you are, but he doesn't want to leave you there. And, and I think that's the way Jesus loves people. I think that's the way we as Jesus followers are called. I can love someone no matter who they are, no matter what they're like, but that doesn't mean that I want them to stay in that state if I truly love them. I want to see them grow. Here's the last one. Both the world and our flesh say this, get even. At all costs, make it right. Get justice for yourself. This is the most natural feeling in the world. And it is also not just a natural reaction in us, but it is actually celebrated by our culture. Um, How many times you go to watch the movies and at the end, when like the hero finally gets a chance to... um, Strike back finally gets even with the bad guy. When the bad guy dies and people just start applauding um, at vengeance, at revenge. Um, And part of it is because 
Part of it is because we, we like justice, and justice is good and right. But there's something in us that actually glorifies in our culture vengeance. Um, that lifts that up as something to be kind of <coughs> celebrated. There are some cultures that don't just kind of celebrate it, but it's actually literally an issue of honor. That you will be someone who is not walked over. That you are someone who, who um, strikes back when you've been struck. This is a really big deal in, uh, in a lot of cultures. Um, that when you've been wronged, when you've been gossiped against, when you've been insulted, when you've been given the cold shoulder, it's easy to want to respond in kind. But we're called to something different. Paul says this, repay no one evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. And this is probably the most countercultural and anti-flesh thing that Paul says here. The most dying to yourself command of all of them, that you would not only refuse to retaliate, but that you would actually wish for the good of those who harm you. That you would actually bless them. That you would actually seek the good of those who would come after you. Sounds crazy to so many people, but this is huge for Paul. He stresses it three times. So how does Paul come up with the crazy definitions of love that he does? In complete... In complete... Um, opposite direction of the way our natural feelings want to take us, in complete um, opposite direction of the way the culture says to love, Paul comes and he brings these completely different definitions and different thinking of love to the table. How does he come up with those things? And the answer is he doesn't. Uh, he stole them. He stole all these ideas about love from his Savior stole all these ideas from his king, Jesus. See if this sounds anything like what we read in Romans tonight. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 43, 45, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Jesus taught these things, and, and Paul is basically repeating back what Jesus taught to us. But Jesus didn't just teach these things. He didn't just say these things. He actually lived these things out. No one exemplified um, injustice being inflicted on them more than Jesus. Someone who never did anything wrong and had a group of people that he came to save turn on him and wrongfully accuse him and put him through a mockery of a trial to convict him as a guilty criminal and to crucify him on a cross. And yet Jesus did not strike back at those. He was the ultimate example of this. First Peter 2, 21 through 23 says this, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so Paul gets his idea of non-retaliation from Jesus. In fact, he gets all his ideas about love from Jesus, all his definitions. The reason that we define love not strictly by feeling but by actions is because of Jesus. 1 John 3.16, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. You want to know what love is? It's not because Jesus felt really good feelings about you. 
It's not because he got warm fuzzies whenever he thought about you. It's because he laid down his life for you. That, John says, is how you can know what love is. And we love people enough to speak the truth to their lives, even when it's hard, because Jesus came not just full of grace, but as John 1 says, full of grace and truth. He came bringing both, and so we come bringing both of those things into other people's lives. And the reason that we pursue people in love before they've shown any care for us is because that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus. Romans 5, 8, the big one. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Before you ever showed interest in Jesus, before you ever had a desire to love Him back, He loved you enough to die for you. And so that's how we treat other people here and on campus and in our dorms and in our neighborhoods. We love like that, not protecting ourselves or our pride, not withholding love because someone rubs us the wrong way or because we're just not naturally affectionate people or because it requires too much time or energy to invest in people. We love people with a real love, with a genuine love, not a cheap substitute because that's the way that Jesus loved us. That's what I want. That's what we long to see more and more of here at the table. It's one of our favorite things to see, the way you love each other. This is what Jesus says. This is how they'll know you belong to me, by the way you love one another. We're actually going to give you a chance next week to do this exact thing, uh, to love your brothers and sisters, only you're going to actually love brothers and sisters that you've never met before. Um, you're going to get a chance to, as Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. Um, so in Vivo, this campus ministry that we've been working with and that Aaron and Holly and Jared are over at serving right now, um, every week they offer free dinner to people to come, um, kind of like we do, only they offer it um, not just for you to kind of come and hang out, but they offer it to get people who've never known anything about Jesus, people who aren't Christians, to come and hear a little bit about the, the gospel and get to know them and those things. And, and so this is something they do. This, is, this comes out of their own pockets. They pay the money to make this happen. And so we thought it would be really cool, a really cool opportunity for us to share in this ministry of theirs um, uh, by actually paying for those dinners for them. And so our, our goal is that next week we would come together. We want to encourage you to come here and to come with a little bit of money, a little bit of offering to be able to give. And, and our goal is to pay for at least one, maybe, maybe, maybe two of those dinners. And we would love for them to be able to stand up on a Thursday night, I think this is when this happens, Thursday, Tuesday, um, and to be able to say to the people who walk in the room, both Christian and unchristian, that there are, um, there are students on the other side of the world who paid for your dinner tonight. There are students on the other side of the world who don't know you, but they love you. And, and they wanted to show that to you tonight by, by giving to you. You have on that mug, I'm, I'm assuming that's Aaron's hand, I don't know. Uh, that's, a, that's a table mug that's made it all the way over there too. Uh, that's inside in vivo. That's the sign you see right when you walk inside the door. And so that's kind of the combination. That's what we want this to be, kind of a table in vivo project um, where we're, we're giving to help them do that. And so we want to encourage you to do that um, next week, to think about coming and bringing some money to give towards that. But I want to encourage you in the meantime to think about what it looks like even right now in the following 20 minutes, 30 minutes we're going to have together hanging out uh, to love people, to, to rejoice with those who rejoice, to mourn with those who mourn, to step out of your way and meet someone and introduce yourself and show kindness uh, to them. Uh, let, me, let me pray and then we'll wrap up.
Dear God, thank you that you showed love to us first. We would not have known what that really is in all its fullness. And we would not have imagined being able to give it to people like our enemies had you not told us to do so and had you not shown us how that works first by, sh by showing love to us, your enemies, um, and, and welcoming us into your family. And so I pray that that would be something that rings true in us, that we love like Jesus uh, tonight and as we go throughout our week. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.